Matthew 10. He called out his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out evil spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. These are the names of the 12 apostles. First Simon, who's called Peter, and his brother Andrew. James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. Philip and Bartholomew. Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus. Simon the zealot and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These 12 Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. As you go, preach this message. The kingdom of heaven is near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Do not take along any gold or silver or copper in your belts. Take no bag for the journey or extra tunic or sandals or a staff, for the worker is worth his keep. Whatever town or village you enter, search for some worthy person there and stay at his house until you leave. As you enter the home, give it your greeting, and if the home is deserving, let your peace rest on it. If it's not, let your peace return to you. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, shake the dust off your feet when you leave that home or town. I tell you the truth, it'll be more bearable for Sodom or Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. Be on your guard against men. They will hand you over to the local councils and flog you in their synagogues. On my account, you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. But when they arrest you, don't worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you will be given what to say, for it will not be you speaking, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will betray brother to death and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. All men will hate you because of me, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. When you are persecuted in one place, flee to another. I tell you the truth, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A student's not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It's enough for the student to be like his teacher and a servant like his master. If the head of the house has been called Beelzebub, how much more the members of his household. So don't be afraid of them. There's nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that won't be made known. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. What is whispered in your ear, proclaim from the roofs. Don't be afraid of those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your father. And even the very hairs on your head are numbered. So don't be afraid. You're more worthy than many sparrows. Whoever acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before men, I will disown him before my Father in heaven. Don't suppose that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I've come to turn a man against his father, daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his household. Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it.
Am I on? I'm on, obviously. Yes. Uh, my name is Ronaldo. Um, I'm one of the student ministers here at Church by the Bridge. I've been here for about four years. Um, and sadly, it's actually one of my last nights uh, at Church by the Bridge. So, um, yeah, it's good to be back in Kiribilli. This last year, I've been over at Lavender Bay. Um, something that struck me when I saw you guys do uh, supper just then was uh, as soon as Haley asked you to go back to your seats, you were kind of immediately o- obedient. Uh, it takes about five or ten minutes for us guys to get back. So thank you for uh, being so kind of timely. Um, I intend to actually go through this passage in quite a lot of detail tonight. So, um, you know, a minister always says, keep the Bible open. Um, tonight, really keep it open because I'm going to look at it. It's a pretty big speech and hopefully we'll be able to understand what Jesus is showing us um, together. But before that habit, I have it, I pray and ask um, for our Lord's help. Uh, Lord Jesus, please help us now to be uh, totally um, obedient to your word. Help us to be true listeners. Um, help us to uh, truly get what you're saying and to be the kind of people who can put it into practice um, and not take it in vain. And we pray this for your sake. Amen. Um, I don't know about you, but I'm a real big sucker for um, inspirational speeches in sport movies. Um, you know those kind of speeches that uh, happen at halftime and the team is down and uh, they've just totally lost all inspiration and the coach gets them in the locker room and you think, this is the moment, right? This is the moment where the game turns around. They're down 40 nil, and he's got to come up with some words that's going to change the momentum of this match. Why do I love those speeches? I think it's because uh, I'm a wannabe sports jock. Well, I weigh about 68 kilos and a football career was never going to happen to me. And because I'm Filipino, I'm deeply sentimental. So I think those two things, sports speeches, just absolutely kind of do it for me. Um, But the other speech that I kind of wanted to think about were graduation speeches. Uh, I don't know if you remember your high school or university graduation speech. Can anyone remember what the words were? Just a quick show of hands. No. Me too. Me too. Uh, I went to a pretty trashy high school in Canberra and I'm pretty sure that uh, the teachers weren't saying inspirational words. I think their kind of message was good riddance. And then at university, I can't really remember the kind of graduating speech at all. It was some stranger that got up and gave some words. We didn't know him, so I can't remember a thing that he said. But you'd think I'd be able to remember it, right? Because um, after all, graduating from university is a pretty significant occasion. Uh, You go from being a student to a teacher. You go from being unemployed to employed, unless you studied arts. Um, You go from being... It's an old one, come on. You you know, it's the truth. You go from being a passive absorber of information to someone who actively uses your knowledge to make real-life decisions. Um, No longer... um, You know, if you're late on something, it's not just you're going to get a a less mark. You're actually going to be affecting people in the real world. Like, it's, it's, it's significant, the transition from university to the real world. And I feel the graduation speech is kind of the launching station, right? Um, the graduate is on the edge of two worlds, from this kind of small, kind of clustered, kind of little environment to the big bad world. And the goal of the person giving the graduation speech is to try and just boost them into the real world with, with as much lift and excitement and inspiration and advice as possible. Would that be kind of a fair description? Yeah. And so what I did was I actually researched the top 10 inspirational graduation speeches 
in American universities. And Steve Jobs got to number one. And I'll read you a part of his speech later. But what I figured was, there's actually four kind of key elements to a graduation speech, and they should be behind me. Um, there's the graduate's contribution to the world. Like, they're trying to pep them up and go, you're going to make a difference, a massive difference. And secondly, they're going to try and tell them, well, how are you meant to live in this world? How are you going to do your job in the right way? Like, the ethos, what you're actually going to do. And thirdly, the challenges that they'll expect. You know, it's not going to be plain sailing, isn't it? You're going to expect challenges. And fourth, reasons to persevere. Those are the kind of things that I've seen in the top 10 graduation speeches as I kind of spent an hour or so reading them. Um, and what I'm trying to tell you is Matthew chapter 10 is a bit like Jesus' graduation speech to his disciples. Uh, and so my hope is this evening, as we kind of uh, look at this speech together, is that we might better know um, what Jesus wants us to do as we go out into the world and represent him and bear his name. Uh, that we'll put aside our favourite gurus and our favourite kind of fashionistas and tell us how to kind of go out into the world and we'll listen to Jesus. And thirdly, I realise as well that some of you probably hate hearing about evangelism, right? I gather Haley's probably drummed on about it a whole lot of times. And you probably come from churches where the only application is um, read your Bible, pray, and tell your friends about Jesus. And you're probably really sick of it. But with a kind of chapter like this, we can't really get around it. Like, it really is about mission. So that's what we're going to be talking about tonight. Well, let's get into it. It's a massive speech with a massive occasion. And it's a massive occasion because Jesus is turning disciples, followers, into apostles, people who are sent in his name. He's turning them from kind of mere passive observers, watching what Jesus does, to people who are actually going to go out there and do the action themselves. And it's a big, big transition, and so he's trying to get them ready. And so that's why the story slows down and we see this massive speech. Okay, first point I want to make is this. What's the contribution going to be? I mean, the key question you've got to ask yourself is, what can these 12 guys do? Now, if you look at their names, you don't actually know a lot about them. So let me help you fill out some background details. Four of them are fishermen. And I don't want to kind of be offensive, but they're not kind of going to be the brightest or the sharpest tools in the shed. They're relatively uneducated. They haven't got the education that most people in their time would need to be religious teachers. You've got one guy who's a tax collector. He's probably smart but uses his smarts to rip off people. And you've got a would-be revolutionary named Simon the Zealot, who's all about trying to overthrow um, the, kind of the, the kind of governing powers of his day. So what I'm trying to say is these guys aren't going to exactly make the Forbes 500 top CEO rich list type thing, are they? Um, they're not going to be necessarily the most qualified guys in terms of going out and representing Jesus. So the question is, what kind of contribution can they make? And I want to tell you that actually... Rather than these guys going out there and being total world beaters, what actually matters is Jesus. You see, it's Jesus the one who firstly sees the need, and he's the one that can do something about it. Have a look at verse 36 of chapter 9, just before our passage. It says this, When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. They were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. You see, in light of our reading from Ezekiel, basically the people of Israel, they're helpless and harassed because the leaders of their time have totally failed. Uh, they were responsible, the leaders were responsible for trying to bring the people of Israel, these people that Jesus is coming before, into a right relationship with God. Like they were trusted with this responsibility and they just didn't live up to it. 
And so Jesus sees this really, really big need. And they're harassed. And what he means by harassed is this. You see, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, all they were doing was looking out for their own interests. All they tried to do was sort of come across as self-righteous. So they just pretended to be able to keep the law and look like they were really obedient when in fact they weren't. And Jesus has a go at them later. Um, they added laws to actually make things harder for people, uh, added traditions that would actually weigh people down. You had people like Herod and the Romans who imposed heavy taxes on the people. So you could imagine Jesus going through these small towns, seeing kind of like little families, giving away all their money to kind of uh, taxes, being totally confused because they didn't know what actually God required of them because the leaders kind of muddled it up. And they're helpless and they're harassed. And they're probably asking questions like, what way is there to God? Has God actually failed us? What's he going to do in our lives? And so the crowds are following him because they're vulnerable and they have nothing left. And so Jesus looks at them, and that key word there is compassion. Jesus is moved to compassion. Now, this is one of my favorite words. Um, um, And if you ever have the privilege of studying an original language, uh, the the original language actually says that the word compassion is actually to be moved within your guts. Um, So uh, it literally means, actually, Jesus is saying, he was moved, or his guts were moved. As he saw this helpless state of the people, he was moved within his bowels for these people. It's something that happened to him. This kind of compassion overcame him. And that's what they kind of did in the ancient days. They talked about emotions in terms of your organs. And compassion was probably one of the strongest tender emotions you could give. It actually meant that you had a tender heart towards someone, that you were actually warm to them rather than being cold and indifferent and not caring. And that's Jesus. And it's Jesus because God is faithful to his promise. He promised someone, he promised that someone would come and finally take care of his people. So friends, I want to just encourage you, when you sort of look down at Bradfield Park and you invite your friends and we see, hopefully, God willing, the 4,000 people that come, these crowds of people, before we strategize about anything that we can kind of do to try and share the gospel with them, I just want you to know, first up, first up, that Jesus, even today, as he is risen, is looking upon these guys with deep, deep compassion uh, because they are harassed and helpless, even though they may seem like they've got it all together. You see, they've probably done all sorts of things, your friends and my family, who are coming there to dehumanise themselves, to harm others. They've probably been victims of serious evils and hurts. And Jesus sees them as harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. And it's only in light of this, in light of this, when we see that Jesus is the one that goes out first and looks at people with compassion, do we realise our role. Our role comes secondary. Our contribution comes secondary. And our contribution is this, in verse 7, if you have a look at it. He says this, As you go, preach this message. The kingdom of heaven is near. The kingdom of heaven is near. We're going out with exactly the same message that Jesus went out with. We're going out with the news that a kingdom is coming, that a king is here, that a king uh, will care for his people, that he'll forgive their sins, that he'll offer a new start with God, that he'll give you hope for the future. That's what we're saying. A kingdom is near. Now, by comparison, graduate speeches, because this is kind of the theme of the night, Your contribution is always cast in self-centered terms, in individualistic terms, uh, in your gifts and abilities. Everything is about building your own kingdom, the kingdom of Ronaldo, the kingdom of Haley, the kingdom of Mike. 
everything's about building your own kingdom. Have a look at this quote here, and you'll see what I'm talking about. This is one of the kind of uh, speeches that I pulled off. Let me read it to you. From Jerry Zucker. But it doesn't matter that your dream came true if you spent your whole life sleeping. So get out there and go for it. But don't be caught waiting. Whatever happens, happen now. So live your life where the, where the action is. Now. You have nothing to lose. Everything you have acquired of value is locked inside you. You. If you have a dream, now is the time to pursue it. But in this speech, in Jesus' speech, by contrast, he says that our contribution is not to build our own kingdom, it's not to unlock our own little hidden potential on the inside, it's to tell people about a kingdom and about a king that has come. So how do we do it? That's the next question. How do you go and how do you do it? Well, Jesus says uh, there in, verse, in the last half of verse 8, freely you have received, so freely give. You see, Jesus transforms lives out of pure kindness. Uh, he does it because he's compassionate. And so therefore, how we spread the news of this king must be the same way he did it. If he gave it for free, we give it for free. So let me read those verses. Freely you've received, freely give. Do not take any gold or silver or copper in your belt. Take no bag for the journey or extra tunic or sandals or a staff, for the worker is worth his keep. Uh, so as we go out, as Jesus sends us out to be people we represent him, he's asking us not to do it for financial gain at all. And let me clarify, someone who's involved full-time in actually, you know, preaching the gospel, they're entitled to obviously, obviously get their living from it. That's what he says at the end, for the worker is worth his keep. Like, it's right that they're supported through the people that they minister to and that they serve. But I think what he's doing is this. He's saying two things. He's saying, don't bring any money or bags with you. Things in the ancient world that would communicate that you're after money if you were going to a town, that you'd want people to come and uh, listen to you and then give money. He's saying, don't even take those things. He's saying, don't even bring anything. Don't even have anything that's attached to you. Don't even act in such a way that could be come across as you're trying to profiteer from this kind of work. That's what I think he's saying. And he's saying as well, don't bring tunics, sandals, and staff, even though they're necessities. So what does that mean? So the next time um, a CMS missionary is about to go overseas and they're about to pack their clothes, um, you say to them, well, Matthew 10 says you can't bring the tunic or the sandals. Is that what it... Is that what it means? Like, is that, like, they can't bring their luggage when they go off to be missionaries? Is that... No, well, again, I don't think it's that at all. I think it's the principle that matters. He's saying, freely you have received, freely give. And he's saying, actually, as well, you'll be given these things, the things that you need as necessities, as you do work. Now, that is really, really scary. Um, For some of you, you may know that I actually worked two years at Sydney Uni on campus. Um, we never charged to tell people about Jesus. Um, we never took a donation at all like we do here at churches. So all the staff had to go out and fundraise their salary. That basically meant I had to go out, talk to all my Christian friends, and ask them to give me money. Essentially, that's, that's what it was. I was saying, yeah, you know, you're supporting work, and they are, but really they were, they were putting food on my table. And I remember going, and I started in February, and I'd gotten a list together, I'd talked to some people, but I hadn't even come close to the 18 grand that I was going to be living off a year. Um, not even close. 
by February. And, you know, do you kind of just, just chuck it in and just go, you don't go? No, I went scarily enough, and you wouldn't believe it, the tunic, the sandals, the necessities, they arrived out of God's kindness. They arrived. And I suppose not every, not every one of you is going to be in that situation. You're going to be on the other side. So what I'm trying to tell you is, if there is someone who's putting themselves out there for Jesus, and you think that they're preaching and doing it faithfully, then I want to let you know, give faithfully and give generously. Now, I'm sure Christ- all churches and Christians knew this, but they don't. Um, the other day, one of my good friends, who is going to be a church planter, he uh, got a magazine, and this kind of thing only happens in America because they're so much bigger than us. He had this magazine, and it was like a, a top 100, top 100 fastest-growing churches in the US. It was, it was kind of like a Forbes Business Review Weekly type of magazine. And we looked at it and it said, top 100 fastest-growing churches in terms of attendees, fastest-growing churches in terms of budgets. And I just thought, that's crazy. Like, if you're obsessed with budgets and getting more money, then you just totally kind of not listen to Jesus. Like, and you're just profiteering, really. I heard of another story of another church where they're in the thousands, my friend was telling me, my same friend, and he said that um, at the end of the year, they gave the minister a brand new kind of four-wheel drive, one of those really expensive ones, like the BMW X5, like as a performance bonus. Like, that's just nuts. Like, it's totally crazy. It really, really is. I mean, and that's where some churches are going, guys. Like, it's, it's really, it's frightening. Um, and I, I sort of tell you this as a bit of a warning. But thankfully, and I'm not trying to kind of drum up this church, thankfully, I, I, I can say that this church is actually really kind of generous towards the cause of missions. Uh, I was at a meeting last week for our missions committee, and to my understanding, I think we're going to be giving about 20% of our annual budget towards our mission partners, um, you know, and uh, a, a proportionate increase every year. Paul and team are really committed to it. Um, so I want to assure you that this church is not like that at all. Anyway, third point is this, expectations. What can you expect when you go out? What can you actually expect? Um, you're going to expect challenges. Like when, you, when, you, when you go out as a, a university graduate, you expect challenges, right? Like life's not easy. But more than challenges, Jesus says expect opposition, not just rejection as if people are going to say, look, no thanks. They're going to actually re- oppose you. They're actually going to say, I don't like what you do. I don't like what you stand for. I'm actually going to try to do something about it to stop it. That's what opposition is. And there's two forms of opposition that Jesus speaks about here. There's kind of religious and state opposition and opposition from your family. So let's just go through them one by one. If you look at verse 17 there, Jesus says to his disciples, be on your guard against men. They will hand you over to the local councils and flog you in their synagogues. That's pretty scary, isn't it? Like, I mean, we don't face that kind of persecution today at all, um, at least here in Australia. Uh, some people are just going to be totally opposed. They're just not going to get Jesus and they're going to want nothing to do with him and they're actually going to hate the fact that you follow him and they will kind of hurt you. Now, it hasn't happened a lot in Australia, uh, but just as I went onto the Voice of the Martyrs website this afternoon, here are the things that are happening to our Christians and brothers and sisters overseas. They're getting killed. They're getting extorted. They're getting denied employment. They're getting kidnapped. Their Bibles and other religious materials are being confiscated. They're imprisoned. They're in tortured. Um, they're discriminated against. I'll give you another example. In Pakistan, where it's a majority Muslim country, 
um, there's this thing called a blasphemy law. So anytime you say something like Jesus is the son of God or Jesus is the way to God, it's blasphemy for, for, most mu- for, for a Muslim. And it's just kind of crazy at the moment because just about any Muslim can kind of invoke this blasphemy law against Christians and these Christians will kind of get locked up and probably put in prison or at worst get executed. And they probably didn't even blaspheme or say anything against Muslims. That's kind of how dire the situation is. That's kind of the world we're living in. And it's a world away from Australia. I realise that. But the other kind of persecution we'll face is from the government, from the state. You see, you'll be brought before governors. Uh, one of our mission partners for Voice of the Martyrs, um, this wife whose um, husband is imprisoned, uh, he was arrested, and I've got the exact words here, for undermining national unity policy and fleeing to another country. So he got 17 years in prison, not including the years he's already served, because he actually worked as a youth leader to send out and grow other disciples. 17 years. His wife visited him in prison the other week, so this is just a story that I've heard, um, that I read. And the guards basically extorted all the money, as, you know, they said, you want to see your husband? Okay, you pay this, you pay this, you pay this. All the money's gone. And I think to myself, that's just horrible. Like, it's absolutely horrible. But we don't actually kind of get that. So I was thinking, how is it actually that we're opposed here in Australia? Like, we're not, these things don't happen to us. What happens to us? And I was trying to think very carefully. And I think this is what happens to us. So I think we get intellectual opposition from sometimes the government and sometimes the culture settings. So let me explain um, and give you some examples. For example, how often do you hear, in terms of intellectual opposition towards us as Christians, you hear, we're a secular country, religion and state are separate, therefore religion has no place in public policy or public debate or public discussion. Or religion is a private affair, keep it to yourself. Um, Or even verse 25, Jesus says, they labelled me prince of demons, I'll label you. What kind of labels do we get? Uh, Here are some of the ones that I've come up with. Fundamentalist, bigot, religious right homophobic, ultra-conservative. And I think that we get all these labels at times to kind of discredit us, to kind of marginalise us, put us to the side, so that anything that we might want to say that might contribute to a public setting and a public forum, well, it's coming from just a bunch of kind of crazy people who are just way too full-on, so we really can't treat what they say with any sense of credibility. Um, Now, what I'm saying is probably at its worst. It doesn't happen all the time, but I just feel that's kind of the intellectual tide that our kind of country is slipping in. Another example, when I worked on campus, we set up something called the Orientation Day about 30 years ago. It was the Christian group that decided to set up a day to welcome the whole university, right? We're committed to that. We like kind of fellowship and relationships and we want people, Christian and non-Christian, to be welcome to university. We set that up 30 years ago. When the university figured out how well we did it and kind of, how great a day it was, about 15 or 20 years ago, they took it off our hands. Okay, fair enough, you take it off our hands, we're going to organise it. But we can still be present on the day, right? Yeah, absolutely. Three years ago, we're still out in numbers, representing everyone else, by far and away, by greater numbers. And we're told, no longer can you walk up to people and invite them to your Christian society or invite them to read the Bible with you. While you're in the public spheres, in public areas, We don't want you to do it. We've had commercial sponsors that have sponsored Orientation Day. You're taking away their attention. So you're no longer going to be able to do it. 
And from that day on, Christians have not been able to invite people on orientation day. And I just find that really, really sad, given the fact that we started it. Now, I know it sounds petty, right? But it is. It's just really, really sad. And slowly and bit by bit, Christians kind of just get marginalised and shrunk. And that's what I feel is perhaps the opposition today. And there's an advantage to that, though, I suppose. You know, we're spared physical pain and beatings, which are horrible. But I suppose the disadvantage is this. At least when you're brought before a court in persecution, at least you can say something about Jesus, right? That's what he says um, in that verse. He says it it in verse 18. He says, you can at least witness to them and witness to the Gentiles, is what he says in the last part of the verse. But when we're marginalised, even that opportunity is taken away. I suppose more painfully, moving on to another form of opposition, is family. You see, it's not just opposition from the government, but from those from our own family. And that's really, that's really, really sad. I notice that Jesus speaks of the most extreme situation when he speaks here. His brother will betray brother to death, in verse 21, and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. All men will hate you because of me. But he who stands firm to the end will be saved. Uh, I was at a Christmas party just the other day uh, at the new church that I'll be going to out in Western Sydney. And there was a a young guy there who started working for the church in a traineeship. And the minister there who um, has welcomed us onto the team, we were having a Christmas party, he ran around and did a speech for each of the members. And it was just a really joyful occasion, lots to give thanks for for the year. And he got onto this one guy, um, Matthew, and he comes from a family that aren't Christians. And he said, Matthew, I realise it's been a really, really hard year for you. Um, I realise your parents hated the fact that you became a Christian and then it just absolutely was horrible for them when you then decided to become a trainee minister. And that's been really hard. And it went all of a sudden from this really joyful Thanksgiving moment kind of just being really solemn and sad. Uh, this guy who had a smile on his face all night, uh, then in many ways just had a big frown. I mean, it's tough when the people we love are actually really against us being Christians. I myself come from a really divided house. My mum and my brother are Christians. And you ask, don't you, what, why does that happen? Like, why, why does it happen that families are divided? Well, there's no easy answer to that. And the answer I'm about to give, if anything, will probably make things a bit harder, but hopefully a little bit easier. Let me explain. Uh, In verse 34, Jesus actually says, if you look at verse 34, do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be members of his own household. And that's full on. And what I think is, Jesus says, or Jesus is trying to communicate is this. I think he's saying, I know that when I come into this world and I tell people there's a fresh start with me, that people actually need to be forgiven and that they're actually living life the wrong way, I know that some people will embrace that and some people just won't. And just so happens that they'll be members of the same family. And in fact, uh, I don't know how it looks in your Bible, that is actually, verse 35 is actually a quote from the Old Testament. And the Old Testament says exactly the same thing where it's quoted from. 
God is going to do something very, very new, and this exact same thing is going to happen. And that's just the nature of it. It's the nature of Jesus coming. So much so that he actually says, I've come to divide. That it's an inevitable result. And you see, it's actually a matter of priority. This may not always happen, but it's a matter of priority. Jesus is saying that he must be number one. Your first love can't be your mother or father or your spouse. Even though he upholds the fact that you've got to honour your parents and you've got to love your family, the Bible is very clear on that. You can't neglect them. But he's saying, in terms of who number one is, it's got to be me. And that hurts. That really hurts. I have a look at this piece of wisdom from Martin Lloyd-Jones. Um, this is a quote that he said. And uh, something I gave to a university student several years ago that helped them who were in divided families. Let me read it to you. For a child to have to stand against a parent is one of the most solemn and serious things we can ever be called upon to do in this life. So whenever it is done in the name of Christ and of God, it should be done with a broken heart. We must not fail to give our parents the impression that it is hurting us and causing us grief and costing us much, that we would cut off our right hand in order to avoid it, but that we have no choice in the matter. And that's the way that we do it, right? We show our absolute allegiance to Jesus. But we tell and show our family that that choice is hard. And we still love them and care for them, but we give them no pretenses or illusions that this is easy or in some way enjoyable. Well, let me recap. Um, graduation speeches are meant to be pretty exciting, and by the looks of your faces, you're all pretty depressed. Truthfully. Me too. Me too. Um, Jesus is about to send us out to proclaim the kingdom of God and he's expecting us to live poorly, to trust that God will provide just at the right time and to expect opposition. You see, becoming a student in Jesus' school doesn't lead to the best graduate jobs, does it? Uh, we're probably asking Jesus, you know, don't you have something more inspirational than, than this in your graduation speech? I mean, if these are the challenges, then why go on? Like, why, why follow Jesus? What reasons are there to persevere? Nobody walk out because there's reasons. First reason is this. Judgment Day will bring the truth out so that there's no reason to fear our opponents. Next slide, please. And again. Jesus says this in verse 26. Don't be afraid of them. There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. What is whispered in your ear, proclaim from the roofs. I think what Jesus is saying, if anyone opposes you, what they do to you, whatever it is, how bad, that will come out one day. That will be made known. And I think justice will be delivered. And I think secondly as well, he's saying, what I'm proclaiming you today, he says the whole world's going to know it one day. So just speak it from the rooftops. Go crazy. Tell people. Because the whole world's going to know it at some point. Everyone's going to kind of bow the knee to Jesus. Everyone's going to acknowledge him as Lord. He's saying, do it now. Tell people now. It's going to happen at some point or another. Second reason to continue is this. God is so much more powerful than our opponents. In two respects, to judge. That quote about don't fear the one that can destroy your body, but fear the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. It's really confusing. Is that talking about Satan, the evil one, or is it talking about God? I'm, I'm pitching God here. I think he's saying, don't, don't be afraid of what people can do to you in this life. 
because the people who are going to get judged, um, they've got a lot worse things coming to them for the whole of eternity, right? Um, I think that's kind of the tone that he's trying to go with. And then he's saying God is a much more severe judge because he'll actually deliver real justice over the course of a lifetime. But then secondly, I think he's saying is this. He's saying, you know, it doesn't matter. God's going to protect you. Like a bunch of sparrows, God feeds them, right? Aren't you more valuable than sparrows? So if this is happening to you, of course I'm going to take care of you. Of course I'll take care of you. God is more powerful than our opponents. And then thirdly, the third reason to go on is this. Jesus will acknowledge us before God. It says that in verse 32. He says, if you acknowledge me before men, if you're open about the fact that I am Lord in your life, then I will acknowledge you before God. That's what he says. That's what he promises. He'll actually vouch for you and you will be with God and you will be okay with God. That's what Jesus is offering. So friends, to conclude, I just want to say this. Until that final day, Jesus tells us to go out and tell of his kingdom, not for financial gain, not, not even backing down in the face of opposition and putting him as number one. You see, that's the most crazy postgraduate plan I've ever heard that Jesus has in store for us. We're told that we're not going to make much money, we're going to re- rely on the fact that God will provide in certain situations and we'll have to wait on him. But, you know, like all graduation speeches, They all have a one-liner, don't they? A one-liner that kind of just captures it. And Jesus says this. This is his one-liner. If you want to take away one verse for tonight, it's this. This is the one-liner. And I'll share with you Steve Jobs' one as well. Whoever finds his life, verse 39, will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Now that's crazy, isn't it? Jesus is saying, lose your life, take up your cross, Deny every sense of rights that you have. Deny every sense of entitlement that you are owed for my sake. Lose your life, and in the end, you'll have it. Um, Rach, can we try and go forward to a quote? I'm just going to try and compare that with some of our worldly wisdom. Is there any more going on? Was that as far as we got? That's it? Okay, that's fine. Um, This is what Steve Jobs said. He said this. Remembering that you are going to die is the best way I know to avoid the trap of thinking you have something to lose. You are already naked. There is no reason not to follow your heart. You see, he's got it backwards. He's got it totally backwards. He's saying, you're going to die. You're naked already. Just follow your heart now. Make the most of life. Just do what you can because that's an inevitability. And Jesus is saying, "Uh, uh, 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 uh-uh-uh-uh-uh. Other way around. He's saying, die now. Die now. Die in this life. It's worth giving up. Because in the end, when he comes, your true life will come. Real life will come. And he's saying, deny it now. Give it all up. Give it all up. And that's hard. That's a hard graduation speech to kind of be hearing. But it's worth it, isn't it? Jesus looked at us with compassion. We were wandering sheep. He came. He healed our wounds. He forgave our sins. He's shown us compassion. And even now when we fail, he still looks upon us with compassion. He's moved within his guts for us. He treasures us. I mean, surely Jesus is worth that, right? To actually listen to that and say, I'll lose my life, but in the end I'll find it. How about I pray that God would give us the strength to do that? Shall I pray? Uh, Father, please, um, these are such challenging words. 
such challenging words that we have to go out in your name, um, that we're called to lose our lives, uh, to not do what the world tells us, which is to make our riches, but to go out and tell people of your son uh, in whatever situation you put us in. So please give us the strength to do that in our homes, in our workplaces, at the gyms we exercise at, at the cafes that we hang out. Please help us to be people who want to see um, people meet their shepherd. Our Lord Jesus, thank you that you are compassionate, that you love us dearly, that you are moved deep within your guts for us and that um, uh, you call us to follow you and to help us please to do that with everything that we have and help us to meet you on that last day. We hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant, and we look forward to that in your name. Amen.